Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me, as always, is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, September 21st. 2020 just won't quit. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death Friday, less than seven weeks before the election, invited immediate debate and liberal fears about the implications of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell altering his 2016 logic for presidential election year Supreme Court confirmations. He's for them after he was against them. But what does it mean for the battles for the White House and the Senate? We'll talk about that and other issues with John Anzalone, the chief pollster on Joe Biden's presidential campaign. After that, we'll break down an ad airing in Battleground, Iowa. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. But up first is Jerome's Gem. This week's Jerome's Gem, my number of the week, is 1864. That year was the only time we've had a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court that came closer to a presidential election than the vacancy that was caused by last Friday's passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg 46 days before the November 3rd election. In 1864, Chief Justice Roger Tawney died on October the 12th, or 27 days before an election in which Abraham Lincoln was seeking re-election against George McClellan. Lincoln nominated Salmon Chase as former Treasury Secretary after the election on December 6th, 1864, and Chase was confirmed by the Senate that same day. In early September 1956, Justice Sherman Minton announced his resignation from the Supreme Court effective October the 15th. President Dwight Eisenhower, then seeking re-election against Democrat Adlai Stevenson, made a temporary recess appointment of William Brennan to the court because the Senate had adjourned, and Brennan joined the court on October the 16th. After Eisenhower was re-elected, he formally nominated Brennan at the start of the next Congress in January 1957, and Brennan was confirmed in March to that lifetime post. Hat tip to my Bloomberg Industry Group colleague Seth Stern, an author of an excellent biography of Brennan. Campaigns and elections have changed a lot since the days of Abe Lincoln and even Dwight Eisenhower, and so has the Supreme Court nomination process. Nomination fights have become partisan Donnybrooks, even when they're not in presidential election years. And in this polarized and highly charged partisan era, it's hard to imagine another Supreme Court justice getting confirmed by a 96-3 vote, as Ginsburg was in 1993. And here we have a vacancy in close proximity to a November 3rd election for which there is very high voter interest and in which some people already have voted. So fasten your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be a bumpy six weeks. And that is your Jero's Gem of the Week. Up next, we'll bring on John Anzalone. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is John Anzalone, chief pollster for Joe Biden, whose firm ALG Research counts Democratic causes and congressional candidates from across the country as clients. John, thanks for coming on the pod with us. Hey, thanks for having me. So we have to start with Friday's bombshell news. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died at the age of 87. Um, and the fact that Mitch McConnell plans to hold hearings and a vote on whoever Trump nominates to replace her. Uh, which is obviously not what happened when there was an opening in February 2016 with Obama in the White House. So far, this election seems to have been about Trump's handling of the presidency uh, and more specifically the coronavirus pandemic. How much does this September surprise affect the races for the White House and the Senate? Well, listen, I think that, you know, 
quite frankly, I don't think it changes the dynamics of this race at all because I think that views of Trump are pretty settled, right? Uh, they've been judging um, him as president over the last five or six months on how he has handled coronavirus, how he's handled you know protests, how he's handled school reopening, um, how he's handled just about everything. Um, and you know, as you know, a majority of voters don't like how he's handled that. I mean, people are judging him as president. The reality is, is that, you know, even in the small amount of polling that we've seen over the weekend, you know, when you ask people, who do you trust to pick the next Supreme Court justice? Uh, it's pretty substantial in favor for, of Joe Biden. Um, I think that this, quite frankly, uh, motivates young voters and particularly young female voters um, at a very high rate uh, that is good for Democrats. Um, and so, you know, um, we had a really big year in 2018, right after Kavanaugh was uh, voted on. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I think the, the key takeaways is, is, you know, don't let Twitter uh, drive what we think the narrative is. Let voters drive what the narrative really is. And the presidential election, as it is traditionally, is a referendum on the incumbent. Um, we can see a national and a lot of battleground state polling where that leaves this race right now today uh, with Biden up by a significant margin. Uh, but it's also evident in Senate race polling. We just had a poll in Iowa over the weekend you probably saw um, showed um, the Democratic challenger there leading um, Joni Ernst, the first term Republican senator. Um are Democrats leading there and in other Senate races, like in North Carolina and running competitively in Georgia, um, are they leading by those margins if Biden isn't the nominee? Well, listen, I think that it always helps if you have a Democratic presidential nominee who doesn't hurt you, right? I mean, I think that's the key. Um, and Joe Biden is the perfect type of guy not only to run against Trump, who, again, is being judged on his, quite frankly, his inexperience and experience is the number one kind of trait that people know about Joe Biden. But they also know him, you know, as kind of a moderate guy. I mean, he not only have experience in leadership, um, but he is not scary to voters, right? He's relatable. He's compassionate. They kind of feel that in a way uh, he's lived part of their lives. Uh, so they're comfortable with, with Joe Biden. And yes, that helps Cal Cunningham. You know, that helps, you know, Mark Kelly. That helps Steve Bullock. Uh, it helps John Ossoff. Um, and the primary reason is, is that uh, Joe Biden doesn't hurt them. Can you compare polling today to polling at a similar point from 2016? Hillary Clinton certainly had a lead at this point four years ago, but does Biden's lead feel more concrete and stable at this point? And what could cause shifts in polling in the final six weeks? Yeah, Greg, I mean, listen, I think that one of the chapters in the book's uh, post-election on this race will be Biden's stability and resiliency in his vote. I think the big difference, and I was right there in the middle of polling for Clinton, is that, you know, uh, there's always the, the, the retort, yeah, but Hillary was leading. The big difference is, is that while Hillary had a margin um, uh, uh, over Trump at this point in time, uh, where Biden is is very different. Um, one, he's at 50% or above, and that's really important. Uh, the polling after the, the both conventions is a really stark contrast where, you know, Biden was at 50 or 51. Uh, back in 16, Trump and Hillary Clinton were tied at 44. 
Um, you know, back in 12, Obama and Romney were tied at 47. So it's not about the margin as much as it is, where is Joe Biden comparatively? And him being at 50-51 is really important, including in the battleground states. The other thing is, is like, who is Joe Biden's uh, coalition? It looks very different than both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Joe Biden is leading with independents, white college educated voters, suburbanites, and seniors. Those are groups that Trump won and Romney won. And I think that that surprises people that Barack Obama didn't win those four groups. I'll say them again, independents, white college educated voters, suburbanites, and seniors. The last Democratic nominee to win seniors was Al Gore in 2000. And so his coalition is much different and bigger and broader, while at the same time um, doing fairly well with the traditional uh, Democratic base. So we could go down ballot for a second. One of my favorite races involves uh, House Agriculture Committee Chairman Colin Peterson of Minnesota, a 30-year House member and one of your clients. He holds the most pro-Trump district of any Democrat in Congress. How has Peterson won so many elections in this era of straight ticket voting? And what are your thoughts about his race this year against Republican Michelle Fischbach, the former lieutenant governor. Well, listen, this is a guy who wins because he is of the district, right? Um, I think people are, are less impressed, even in Minnesota 7, that he's chairman of agriculture than he himself was a 4-H kid, right? That he himself was in the National Guard, that he hasn't lost his kind of values and who he's actually in Washington, D.C. for. So you have candidates like this or elected officials who are very much of the district, and that's why they keep winning, uh, re regardless of whether uh, it was a Trump 30 district. This is also a district, quite frankly, that Klobuchar won narrowly, right? And it has been competitive. Obama, I think, lost it by a couple points, um, but it has been competitive in Democratic years. But what it is, is is always competitive or, 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 or leans, if you will, Peterson, because of the type of elected official he is and the type of candidate he is. And more, more than anything, the type of resident he is of that district. Um, so you're joining us from Alabama. Uh, I know you have clients uh, in Georgia and Arizona, another Sunbelt state um, where there's a lot of interest this year and where you also have clients. Um, is Texas, uh, another state we're watching to see to what extent is it moving from red to purple? Um, you know, I know there's uh, there's the presidential race there, Senate race there, several House races, the state house um, is, is uh, in play. How close are Democrats to competing in Texas consistently? Yes, it's the new normal, right? I mean, what we're seeing in 2020 and both you know, my partner, Zach McCreary, does both Peterson in Minnesota and, and Hagar in, in uh, Texas. So want to make that clear. But it's the new normal. I mean, right now, I mean, you know, the way that Zach will always explain it to me is if you take kind of like Dallas and Houston and San Antonio and Austin, it's basically one big metropolitan area. It is the suburbs and Democrats do really well in the suburbs. And you add on to that the African-American and the Latino population um, and all of a sudden, you know, this is going to be the new normal. I mean, what you're seeing Hagar vote, you know, uh, versus Cornyn is not all that different from, from Beto and Cruz, meaning that this is a race that I think most people thought Cornyn would put away at this point in time, and he's stuck in the mid-40s. And so Texas being competitive 
is the new normal uh, for, um, for electoral politics. Uh, and that does not bode well uh, for Republicans. All right. And uh, so every, as everyone knows, South Carolina is really where Joe Biden won the Democratic nomination. Um, it, it's home to a very interesting Senate race this year with Lindsey Graham uh, running even with his Democratic challenger. It also had one of the biggest upsets of the midterms with, when jo- Joe Cunningham won by a point and a half. Um, what, what's it look like down there this year? Can Cunningham win re-election in a presidential year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not only because it's a presidential year, um, you know, again, you have the U.S. Senate race that's very competitive. So the dynamics for Cunningham, um, quite frankly, um, are very good. Again, uh, Joe Biden's a respected guy. He's not going to lose South Carolina in the margins that Hillary Clinton did. Um, but there's also a big focus about you know, who Democrats stand for and who Republicans stand for, because Lindsey Graham uh, has kind of imploded in a lot of ways. Uh, His job rating is underwater. Uh, He has problems, quite frankly, just all around uh, in his own base and independents and and Republicans. Now, Joe Cunningham also uh, represents uh, the Charleston uh, congressional seat. And so, um, without a doubt, it is a urban, suburban, uh, highly educated area uh, and he, like Colin Peterson in a very different way, is very much of this district, right? I mean, he's a young, uh, energetic guy with a, a great uh, story and a young family um, who just represents this district about as good as you can uh, in the Deep South. All right. Well, John, we know, you're, we know you're a busy guy. We really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on the pod today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You can follow John Anzalone on Twitter at John Anzo. Okay, up next, we're heading to Iowa. So it's absolutely frightening when Senator Ernst talks about gutting Social Security behind closed doors. I have talked about privatizing Social Security. Joni Ernst looks out for Wall Street. She's just not for us. I'm Teresa Greenfield, and I approve this message because I'll stand up to politicians who threaten to gut Social Security. Iowa seniors have worked hard. They've earned it. That was an ad from Teresa Greenfield, the Democrat challenging Republican Senator Joni Ernst in Iowa. Greg, what did you hear? Yeah, Cal, so Social Security privatization, that's a phrase that hasn't received much attention since George W. Bush's presidency, and certainly not in an election year dominated by the pandemic, economic woes, climate change, racial injustice, and now a Supreme Court nomination fight. But it's still an issue that has resonance among our growing population and in states, including Iowa, which has an above average percentage of over 65 residents. And you heard Joni Ernst say, quote, yes, I've talked about privatizing Social Security, unquote. But Greenfield's ad cuts off the rest of the Senator's statement in which she says, yes, I've talked about privatizing Social Security as an option. And she's clarified that she didn't support changing benefits for current beneficiaries, but wants to consider options for younger workers. Democrats used this footage against Ernst in 2014 campaign ads, but she went on to win anyway. A Des Moines Register poll released over the weekend showed a close race with Teresa Greenfield at 45% and Senator Ernst at 42%. And with Republicans clinging to a 53 to 47 majority that's in danger, this Iowa race, Kyle, will be one that helps determine which party controls the Senate. That's right. And we know Joe Biden is competing in Iowa as well. He's been running Social Security ads in Florida and across the country. Okay, before we close the show, we got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. 
Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, our listeners, with a political trivia question. Let's first review last week's question and answer. And I asked for the last presidential election year that produced a change in partisan control of the U.S. Senate. Now, I gave you four choices on a Bloomberg government Twitter poll, but Kyle, I don't know if you really need the choices on this one. If you do, I'll give them to you, but you want to take a guess anyway. Yeah, I need the options. (laughs) Okay, it was either 1980, 1988, 1992, or 2000. I'm going to go 1980. That is correct, 1980. The Republicans won control of the Senate from the Democrats that year amid a Ronald Reagan landslide. So good job, Kyle, and good job, listeners, if you got 1980 correct. And now for this week's question. In the Ad of the Week segment, we discuss the Iowa-U.S. Senate race between Republican incumbent Joni Ernst and Democratic challenger Teresa Greenfield. So let's stay there for the trivia question, too. I want to know, in what year was an Iowa-U.S. Senator last defeated for re-election? You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We will post this question this week as a Twitter poll with four choices, and I will give the answer and ask a new question on the next episode of Down Ballot Counts. That's it for us today. Before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Well, we've got a Supreme Court announcement from President Trump at the end of the week he's promising, so watch what senators, including politically vulnerable members, say about Trump's choice and also the process. Look for movement in Congress this week on a stopgap spending measure to keep the U.S. government open after the new fiscal year begins October the 1st. And it's candidate debate season. We have a bunch of them this week, including tonight, Monday night, in Michigan's 8th district between Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who represents a district that Trump narrowly carried in 2016, and Republican challenger Paul Young. And Tuesday night, a debate between North Carolina Republican Senator Tom Tillis and Democratic challenger Cal Cunningham. You can follow me on Twitter at Greg Giroux for more details about upcoming candidate debates. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We will talk to you next week. Taxes and accounting are complicated. But finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu, And I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you. From what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.